Hello, this is Vinay Nadkarni, head of the Portfolio Specialist team at ClearBridge Investments, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our podcast series where we will share the latest insights from our investment team. ClearBridge is a leading fundamental global equity manager with $110 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet four primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, low volatility, and ESG investing. Before we begin today, please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of December 14, 2016, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. I'm excited to be here today with my colleague, investment strategist Jeff Schultze. Jeff is a member of the CFA Institute with 11 years of investment industry experience and follows the markets and economy for ClearBridge. Jeff, let's start with a topic on everybody's mind, the new president-elect. The sentiment around growth expectations for the economy has really done a 180 since the U.S. election results with many sectors already reflecting a robust recovery. What are your projections for the economy and the markets in 2017? And what are you looking for in policy and company action that could either sustain or derail this sentiment? Well, great. Thanks, Vinay, and, and welcome, everybody. We certainly live in interesting times, and the market's pricing in some major changes to the U.S. economy with the election of Donald Trump. And rightfully so. We should be seeing some increased growth domestically if all the changes that have been discussed actually come true. But I want to caution everybody that we have a long road ahead of us until we reach that potential destination. Most importantly, many of these changes, they're going to take some time to come into existence, and when they do, these promises are going to be watered down from their initial proposals. Because of this, I think 2017's economic growth will be relatively similar to what we've seen during this recovery. Our baseline expectation for GDP next year is 2.25%, with the first six months of the year seeing lower growth because of these delays, and the back half of the year ratcheting it up to the high 2% range. The S&P 500 should be positive as well, with returns in the mid to high single digits. So let me elaborate here for a little bit. Trump's going to take office on January 20th next year, and he's going to have a lot of initiatives to tackle. And the one that's arguably the most important to the economy and the markets is tax reform. Tax reforms take much longer to implement than tax cuts because you have a lot of vested interests involved. There's going to be quite a bit of lobbying from powerful corporations because they want to keep their preferential tax treatments and loopholes. All that's going to do is going to slow down the process, ultimately resulting in smaller overall tax deductions. On top of that, the House's version for corporate tax cuts is the one that's closer to what's actually going to pass, and it's less generous than Trump's plans. I don't think terms like budget neutrality are going by the wayside in the Republican camp anytime soon, so I know it's early in the process, and there's a myriad of outcomes we could see. But I believe that the current market expectations for fiscal expansion, I think they may be running ahead of the political realities. So to give some perspective, we can look at the last time tax reform happened, which was during the second Reagan administration. Although Reagan had won 49 out of 50 states in the 84 election, 
it still took him two years to complete the Tax Reform Act. So realistically, we're probably not going to get tax reform until Q3 of next year and possibly even Q4. And let's not forget, right, the U.S. isn't in a recession. So there's no urgency to get money into the hands of both consumers and businesses. And there's a real possibility that the tax cut will bypass 2017 altogether, starting or phasing in on Jan 1, 2018. But there is one tax cut that will hit the economy next year, and it's going to come from the repeal of the ACA. People might know it better as Obamacare. The repeal of Obamacare is going to hit the docket early in 2017 on the framework outlined earlier this year, but we don't necessarily have a replacement plan. That's going to come at a later date. But the important issue from a stock market perspective is that the legislation would immediately repeal the 3.8% tax on investment income for high-income earners. So that's going to bring down cap gains rates and the dividend tax rate from 23.8% back down to 20. So effectively, that's going to be a 16% tax cut on cap gains and dividends for your highest tax bracket individuals. And it's going to increase the after-tax rate of return on equities, making them more attractive on a relative basis, potentially providing a small boost to the markets and the economy. Another area where expectations are running a little hot right now is infrastructure. The infrastructure package is a lower priority than a lot of other initiatives, and it's probably going to be passed sometime in the second half of next year. But only when it passes, only at that point, that's when the bidding process can begin. You can see money start to move into actual contracts and projects. And because infrastructure projects have a notoriously long lag time, this spending is most likely going to affect the economy in 2018, and it's going to be at a level probably less than the headline number of $1 trillion. So delays on both the tax and infrastructure fronts are going to push out growth a couple more quarters than the market is currently anticipating. Now, one policy decision that could potentially derail this outlook is trade wars or some measure of protectionism. If you look throughout human history, we've, we've made the same mistakes over and over again. And trade wars are, are certainly one of those mistakes. And the last time that we saw a global trade war was the 1930s with the passing of the Smoot-Hawley Act. The Great Depression, it, it happened for a number of reasons, but one of the key reasons why it was so devastating was a result of a trade war. And after you had the passage of that bill, both imports and exports plunged 70% from peak to trough. Now, I, I'm sure many of you think we're probably smarter than we were back in the 1930s, but you heard the same fears of a global trade war back then as you do today. So this isn't a, a scenario that I, I envision, but it is a risk that warrants attention. And some speculate that Trump's trade policy will end up taking the form of what's called the border adjustment tax, which is similar to a VAT or, or a consumption tax. And this is going to put a tax on all imports and all goods consumed in the U.S. while not taxing exports. This is a way that Trump could console his constituents, put the U.S. on equal footing versus the rest of the world. But in its current version, a border adjustment tax would violate World Trade Organization rules so it's by no means a definite or a shoo-in come next year. Again, I just want to stress we're early in the process, and Trump has walked back some of his hard rhetoric, but it is a situation that bears watching. Well, 2016 will be marked as a year where political prognosticators got almost everything wrong uh, and against market expectations. The initial market reaction to the election of Donald Trump went against historical norms as well, with stocks, after a kind of overnight sell-off, rallying in the aftermath of the surprise result. Markets, though, tend to do worst in the first year of a four-year presidential term. But do you anticipate another non-traditional response to Trump's first year in office? 
Well, the, the knee jerk to the Trump victory was negative, which I will go ahead and say that I called. <laughs> Uh, but I'm not going to pat myself on the back too much because I was right for exactly one half of a trading day. Uh, but the market smartly focused on the potential policy changes for U.S. growth, but also the economic background. Trump inherits a good economy, whereas many first-term presidents are dealing with a recession or an economy that's going into a recession. So this factor alone should help Trump buck the trend of a tough first year of market performance. If you look at 2016, We've been rallying on better economic data and an end to the earnings recession, both trends which I expect to continue into next year. If you look at global and U.S. PMIs, they both continue to rebound. You have business, uh, investor, consumer confidence numbers. All three of those are rising. Uh, the employment situation continues to strengthen, and the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index jumped to positive 25% earlier this month. And for those of you not familiar with the City Surprise Index, it tends to be a very good indicator of short-term moves in the market. It's not to say that there aren't risks. There always are. But the biggest risk that we've been dealing with since 2009 might be behind us, which is global deflation. If you look at the PPIs of China and Europe, they've rebounded significantly from the lows earlier this year, which indicate that we may have seen a bottom. So with that as the backdrop, I think that the odds of a recession are relatively low. And that's why I think Trump will experience a stronger year in the market than most other presidents experience. We are fundamental equity managers, but there isn't a day where we aren't asked our view on currencies and interest rates, both of which are tough to really put a fundamental valuation on. As you peer into 2017, can you comment on the potential for continued strength in the U.S. dollar and the huge move in interest rates over the last six weeks? Great question. Um, I'll, I'll tackle the rates question first. If you look at the bond market, 10-year treasuries have moved roughly 60 basis points since the election, and they're now yielding around 2.5%. Some people view that as sizable, but I personally don't. It's basically 15 basis points higher than treasuries were this time last year. So we've done a round trip. But this move really isn't large considering how much the facts have changed in regards to growth and inflation. So with this recent sell-off in treasuries, I think it's actually partly a function of a a reversal of a lot of the safe haven flows we saw earlier this year because we have better growth prospects rather than a repricing of the new fiscal environment. So that begs the question, why isn't the broader market buying into this yet? Well, first off, I think you need to have a consolidation because we've had a fairly substantial move up here over the last couple months. But also, I think there's a lot of disbelief about how things have changed so dramatically. Deflationary forces have been prevalent for so long investors are going to have a hard time changing that mindset going forward. So I want everybody to, to do a quick, uh, a quick uh, example for me. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to envision the following scenario. The unemployment rate's at 4.6%. You have rising wage pressures. You have increasing inflation and inflation expectation. And there's a high likelihood that fiscal stimulus is going to boost growth over the next couple years. Now, in that scenario, would a 2.5% 10-year treasury be the interest rate you'd expect? Not at all, right? Even, even with this move up, a 100 basis point move up, this is a historically low interest rate environment. So basically, all the factors that made the bond market an amazing place to invest for this entire recovery, they're moving in the opposite direction. So I do think that there's a strong case for the bond market to normalize towards levels more in line with history. 
So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the bond market is vulnerable at this point in the cycle. As bonds become a drag on returns and a source of risk, investors are likely to rotate into fixed, out of fixed income and into assets that participate in rising rate environments. And if you look at the flow data over the past month, investors are clearly getting that message. So while I do believe rates will continue to rise, the pace of that rise is very, very important. I can't stress that enough. If we get over 3% on the 10-year treasury in a relatively short time frame, think four or five months, you could see a decent correction in stocks as investors reprice risk premiums and the discount rates. The one other thing I want to note about this current treasury sell-off is that we've seen spreads tighten and inflation expectations rally. This is very important. We're in a completely different place than we were last December when the Fed was marching to a rate hike and signaling that several more were to come down the pike. Credit markets at the time were in a tailspin. Inflation expectations were crashing. This is a stark difference in backdrops. And what it really means is that future rate hikes aren't going to cause the same kind of carnage that we saw at the beginning of the year. The one thing future rate hikes could and is causing is some upward pressure on the dollar, though. And we've, we've seen a pretty big move in the dollar index post-election. So higher rates and a higher dollar are going to be part of the story next year. But at least on the dollar front, I think it's going to be less than most people envision. Even with the economy approaching full employment and inflation moving towards target, the Fed's probably going to take a, a wait-and-see approach because they don't know whether or not these policies are going to be adopted. They don't know when they're going to be adopted. They don't know how large that package is going to be. And they don't know when it's going to enter into an effect. It's going to be premature for the Fed to, to jump the gun and signal higher rates with so much up in the air. So I'd expect three rate hikes next year with more to come in 2018 and 19 once visibility is restored on the fiscal side. So I, I think the dollar will move up moderately higher from here. But considering the very supportive U.S. policy mix, I think a 5 or 10 percent move in the dollar wouldn't be enough to derail this recovery. And I think most investors aren't aware of this, but if you look at the last seven Fed tightening cycles, six out of those seven Fed tightening cycles saw dollar weakness rather than dollar strength. And with 2015's rate hike happening a year ago, I don't actually view that as the first rate hike. I, I view yesterday's rate hike as the beginning of this rate hike cycle. So I, I do believe that the dollar will strengthen, but I don't see it strengthening to the tune of 25 or 30% like a lot of dollar bulls out there will prognosticate. So I shouldn't plan my trip for London just yet for next year. I think you, you have a little bit of time. We know that the U.S. consumer largely drives uh, the economy uh, here in the United States. But data points around the consumer continue to improve, whether you look at wage growth, consumer confidence, household balance sheets. What will it take for a healthy consumer to really start spending again in a way that lifts the recovery into a sustainable trajectory? U.S. corporate profits rebounded in Q3, which is really a continuation of the trend from Q1's lows earlier this year. But earnings should continue to move higher on a combination of stronger global growth, strong consumer sentiment, lower corporate taxes, and a continued share count reduction. Consensus earnings for the S&P next year at 133, which would be roughly a 12% increase from year end. And I think this may turn out to be a little bit on the high side, but consensus earnings usually tend to start off a little frothy. So as I mentioned earlier, global growth has rebounded. A lot of economic indicators continue to be strong, and manufacturing PMIs around the world are signaling expansion 
which should bode well for both top line and bottom line growth. And a lot of people don't know this, but there's a pretty strong correlation here in the US between manufacturing PMI and earnings, which is a little surprising given that manufacturing makes up so much smaller of a share of the US economy than services do. So if you look at earnings per share in the S&P 500 over a one year period, they actually move with a two month lag to manufacturing PMI. So if you're using this measure, you would have known that earnings were going to rebound in between the first and second quarters of this year. So no reason to worry. If you look at manufacturing PMI right now, it still has a solid reading of 53, which indicates that earnings should continue to expand into 2017. Taxes also could potentially help earnings. If you look at the U.S. statutory tax rate, it's at 39%, but the median S&P 500 company pays an effective tax rate of around 28 so assuming we do get tax reform, it's estimated that for every one percentage point drop in the effective tax rate, that's going to add $1.50 to earnings per share. So if the effective tax rate goes down by 4%, you could see $6 in earnings higher whenever that transition does take place. But again, caution is warranted because it remains to be seen how much the tax cuts will be and when their effective date will, will go into place. But when it does, it should be a nice boost to corporate earnings. The last thing I'll mention that should boost earnings is the repatriation of overseas cash. It's gonna drive corporate buybacks higher and we'd expect earnings to go up by a buck or two because of it. So right now, domestically, there's $2.4 trillion worth of capital locked up overseas. Back in 2005, when we had that tax holiday, companies brought back 50% of their cash. So if we use that same percentage this time, that means that the corporate sector is going to be flush with a trillion dollars. And a lot of that's going to make its way to the market in the form of buybacks. So because of buybacks, because of tax reform, and also because of a stronger global economy, we think revenues and earnings should be going higher in 2017. Since the credit crisis, U.S. equity returns have largely been driven by growth over value, peaking in 2015. And in 2015, large caps really sizably outperformed small caps, which often is a precursor to the thinning out or the maturing of a bull market. However, 2016 has seen a reversal in this trend with value significantly outperforming growth and small caps outperforming large caps by a large margin. Do you see this as trend or a head fake? And what could drive a value-led rally in the later part of this economic cycle? Good question. Growth versus value. It'll be a close call, uh, but when all is said and done, I do think value will slightly be more positive than growth at the end of the day. Firming growth, improving inflation trends, and rising commodity prices suggest a continued rotation into value would be rewarded by investors. I don't think it's going to be a wide differential, but value should have the upper hand. But it's important to note that there's going to be some significant deviations from a sector perspective. Financials, which is value's largest sector by far, they appear to be the best positioned in the space even after the huge post-election rally. Less regulation and higher rates is a pretty potent combination. By that same token, though, reinflation is going to hurt a lot of the bond proxy sectors that have benefited over the past five years. So within the value complex, it's going to be very important to choose your spots wisely. Small caps, I think actually will fare better than large caps with this new administration for a couple reasons. Taxes uh, is one reason, a stronger dollar, and also small caps are going to be insulated from potential trade wars. 
So most small cap companies have their revenues tied to the U.S. So historically, there's been less opportunities for them to go and lower their effective tax rates due to international tax considerations. So when we do get these tax cuts, many of these small cap operators are going to be the biggest beneficiaries of this new tax code, adding more to their bottom line versus a lot of their large cap counterparts. But also a, a strong dollar is going to have an outsized benefit for small caps because there's less currency translation and there's less pressure in overseas markets if you, if you do get a stronger dollar. And, and the last reason why I think small caps will outperform is obviously because if you do see some for, sort of protectionism measures come through on the Trump administration, they're going to be much better insulated than a, a multinational company. So I do believe the trends for outperformance for value in small caps continue into next year. We know that the U.S. consumer largely drives uh, the economy uh, here in the United States. But data points around the consumer continue to improve, whether you look at wage growth, consumer confidence, household balance sheets. What will it take for a healthy consumer to really start spending again in a way that lifts the recovery into a sustainable trajectory? Well, you hit the, the nail on the head. As most people know, consumption's king here in the U.S., making up 70 percent of our economic activity. The health of the economy is very much dependent on the health of the consumer and, more importantly, their outlook for the future. And the consumer might be in the best shape they've been in post-crisis. Employment trends are strong. Home prices have rebound. People are paying record lows to service their debt. Wage growth is finally percolating up. And you have this potential for lower taxes next year. And you're starting to see a change in mentality because of all these positives. So the most recent consumer confidence number from the conference board came in at 107, which is a post-recession high. And this is a pretty good indication that the U.S. consumer, they're feeling good about the prospects of the economy, which means that they're going to be more inclined to spend rather than save heading into the new year. Consumers have more than tripled their savings rates since 2005. Now, I don't see us going back to that level of spending. I think it would probably be good for the economy if we didn't. But it wouldn't be a surprise to us if the consumers loosen their belts a little next year in, in lieu of that potential tax break. Another area that we commonly look at in assessing the health of the consumer is the labor market. And with the most recent JOLT survey, we saw a continuation of an uptrend in the quit rate in October. This is a really good sign that the job market is starting to tighten. And more importantly, the average worker is willing to move positions to get a pay raise. These types of animal spirits should translate into a rate of spending at least on par with current levels, but quite possibly higher. And the last thing I'll mention on the consumer is on wage growth. Wage growth has been stubbornly low throughout this entire recovery, but there may be a better indicator to look at, which is the Atlanta Fed Tracker Index. This index has accelerated 3.9% year over year, and it's a better snapshot than the headline number, better known as the average hourly earnings number. And here's a quick example why. So if you have a baby boomer that retires early and they're replaced by a millennial working for three quarters of the pay, the Atlanta Fed number would adjust accordingly while that headline number wouldn't. So because of this, I'd argue that the Atlanta Fed index is a better gauge of actual wage gains that employees see in the same job or the same industry. So if you put that all together, higher wage growth, higher confidence, higher quit rates, all these things should equate to a consumer that continues to spend next year. We've discussed the bullish scenario for the economy, Jeff, um, but I think a hallmark of Clearbridge is to really think about the downside and the risks uh, that people aren't thinking about. And it's now been 30 quarters 
since the last recession. And unless something unforeseen happens in the last two weeks of the year, you're going to have every calendar year of the Obama administration where you have positive returns for the S&P 500. So many people say we're due for a correction. What recession signals are you following and what do they tell you? Well, there's, there's an old adage out there. Bull markets don't die of old age. And you can relate that same concept to the economy. Economic expansions have no fixed timeline, so there's no reason to expect a downturn simply because of this long stretch of growth. If anything, based on history, we should expect a continued expansion. So if you look at every economic expansion since the 1960s and you, you highlight the low inflationary ones, the average low inflationary expansion has been 33 quarters long, or if you put that a different way, 8.25 years. So just for us to get to that average, that's going to take us into the later part of next year. I'm sure that's a surprise to a lot of people listening. But remember something, the average is the average. Half of these recoveries are longer than that. Half of these recoveries are shorter than that. And given the amount of accommodation that we've seen from a central bank and now a fiscal perspective, I think there's a really good chance that we make it past that point. So history's on our side. But there's a number of recession indicators that we follow at ClearBridge, 11 of them to be exact. And right now, 10 out of 11 of those indicators are flashing no recession for 2017. The only one that's flashing yes is the drop in corporate profits from their highs in 2014. So I'm not going to go through all 11 indicators, but they help us identify inflection points in the economic cycle. The yield curve, for example, has predicted seven out of the last seven recessions going back to the 1960s. Housing permits, they've dipped down aggressively around two years prior to every recession. Oil prices spike aggressively before every recession as well. These are just a couple of the, these metrics, but combined, they really give us quite a good perspective on what's in store for the economy. It really helps us filter out a lot of the noise that you hear in everyday financial markets. So with 10 out of 11 flashing no, we think that there's a, a very low probability of a recession next year. Jeff, in working with you, I always know you, you give a good brass tacks kind of takeaway summary. So give me your key takeaways for investors heading into 2017. Key takeaways would be the, the first off that our expectation for GDP growth is positive at two and a quarter percent, coupled with mid to high single digit returns. Growth is going to continue to be slow for the beginning half of next year, but it's going to ratchet up in the second half due to the fiscal stimulus that's likely coming out of Congress. The overall level of fiscal stimulus might be less, and it might take longer than is currently anticipated, but it should help elevate markets through lower taxes, lower regulation, and also with the repatriation of overseas capital. Tax breaks on the individual side should continue to give consumer confidence in this recovery and also make equities more attractive on an after-tax basis for your high-income earners. The backup in yields is, is something that's it's not temporary in our eyes based on the fundamental outlook for both growth and inflation. You could finally start to see this rotation away from bonds into equities. And I, I think the investment strategy of, of buying the dip will slowly be replaced by a sell the rally mentality on the fixed income side. Rates should continue to raise higher into next year, but the pace of that rise is extremely important with 3% being the potential threshold that would signal a correction. I think the Fed takes a wait-and-see approach until there's visibility on the size of the fiscal stimulus. And once there's visibility, I do think that the dot plots will reset upward, and you're going to see tightening monetary policy working towards sterilizing some of this fiscal and regulatory stimulus that we're going to see. 
Dollar strength will continue into next year, but at a pace much slower than what we've seen post-election. And also the potential for trade disruptions is the big unknown, and history has certainly shown that it doesn't benefit anybody. We'd expect most of this rhetoric to be just that, rhetoric, but it can't be ignored, some of the claims that the Trump administration has talked about, and it's a situation that we're watching very carefully. And the last thing that I'll mention is that we've had a changing of the guard in a sense. It'll be a changing of Fed policy response functions that we've seen from uber dovish to something more hawkish. We're going to see two new Fed committee members appointed next year with a new Fed chair and vice chair coming in 2018. So we're not going to be in the QE-dominated world going forward, which is going to be great for active managers. QE and you know easing at the slightest sense of market tension really masked a lot of corporate weakness because easy credit was made available to the weakest and most levered institutions. So in this new era, combined with a changing tax and regulatory environment, it's going to reward those active managers that can assess balance sheet strength, assess special tax situations, be in front of a lot of these potential regulatory changes. And bad companies are going to be more easily exposed while good companies will begin to be rewarded and re-rate upwards. So that's a long way of saying I think active managers should have quite an advantage versus their passive counterparts looking forward. The one thing I will mention is that we could see some higher volatility next year as the market and a lot of market participants are going to be hanging on every one of these initiatives that are, are coming through Congress. But we think a positive economy, a positive market for 2017. Jeff, really enjoyed your perspective uh, today, enjoyed the dialogue, and we hope that your listeners uh, that downloaded this podcast did as well. As we said at the beginning, this is going to be a series that we do over time. So please contact your sales representative with feedback on this session, ideas for future podcasts, and please go to our website, clearbridge.com, to download this and other content uh, that's available on our website.